are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. take your Bible tonight and turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. While you're turning there, uh, I hope, I really hope that you as people of North Valley Baptist Church appreciate what God has given you. I hope that you understand that this is more rare than you realize. I hope you pray for your pastor every day. There are churches and people all across this country who would give anything to have what we enjoy every week. See, there's some things you'll never understand unless you've been a pastor. You will never understand the burden he carries. You will never understand the battle he causes. To you, it's not worth fighting over. It's not worth making it an issue. It doesn't mean that much to you. But he sees it differently than you do. He's looking at more than just you. He's looking long term. And by the way, you'll never understand the blessing he craves. He wants God's blessing on your life. Probably for many of you more than you want it. And you ought to count yourself grateful and extremely blessed to be a part of this place. Now he didn't tell me to say that and I'll probably never preach again, but it was on my heart so I said it. The book of Ruth, we're in our Wednesday evening Bible study, making our way uh, book by book through the Old Testament. And Pastor has done a fabulous job of giving us a word that starts with the letter R for every book. And he finally came to a book that he thought I could help with. So we're going to call this Ruth tonight. And uh, my limited vocabulary and uh, not, not very wise mindset I think we'll just remember this by the word Ruth, and that'll help you remember this book this evening. I want you, if you found your place, to stand to your feet, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to read and ask you to follow along. I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter one, but I want to read two different portions and kind of connect them together for the sake of time. Ruth chapter number one and verse number one. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chalion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons, and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. 
They dwelled there about 10 years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Now let's skip for the sake of time over to verse number 19. You know the story, she's going with Ruth and uh, Orpha, her daughters-in-law. She persuades Orpha to turn back. Ruth will not be persuaded. So verse number 19, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and they said, is this Naomi? And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty had dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned. Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, what a joy it is to gather with your people in your house on Wednesday evening. Lord, how my heart has been encouraged as we have had an opportunity to fellowship before the beginning of service. Lord, how my heart has rejoiced as we've heard your praises sung. Even the prelude as the pianist played and I thought of the words of the songs they played, how it stirred my heart. Now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word. Lord, I realize that without your help, I can do nothing. And so I ask this evening that you would come. Lord, I pray that you might fill me with your power, that you might use me for your honor and for your glory. May we go away from this place having been helped by being in the house of God, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look to the book of Ruth, uh, tonight I, my goal is not to give you a verse-by-verse expository journey through this book. Um, I really felt kind of bad when pastor asked me to speak on this because most of you know I've written a book on Ruth and many of you have purchased it and so you're sitting there thinking he has nothing else to say. And you're probably quite right. I don't have a lot else to say. I, I took all of my mind that I had and put it into the book and, uh, and so there's not very much left. But I, I found this about the Bible. I found it's always an inexhaustible well. There's always another drink to be drawn from the well of the Word of God. And I pray this evening that as I just kind of give you a glimpse as we make our way quickly through this very familiar story, I hope that you will be encouraged, you will be helped and challenged by our time in the Word of God this evening. There are many things we could note by way of introduction. There are so many items that are of spiritual note. Uh, if, I, if I were going to study this book, I would start in the way I start in many books. I, I would begin by thinking about the people of this book. In chapter number one in our reading, we've read of six individuals who are mentioned by name. There is a man by the name of Elimelech. The name Elimelech means my God is king. Can I just say this? Elimelech didn't live up to his name. 
Could I say that you and I have the name of Christian? I hope that as we go through our daily life that we endeavor to live up to our name. That we are a representative. We are a replica of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christian means. It means little Christ. And all that the world could look at us as we go through our daily living and see Jesus in us as we interact with them. I call Elimelech the wandering one. He leaves Bethlehem, Judah, and goes to Moab. He has a wife by the name of Naomi. Uh, The name Naomi means pleasant, or some scholars would say it means that God is sweet. Could I say this? Naomi did not agree with her name. Her name means God is sweet, but when we read of her at the end of chapter number one, she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me God is sweet. She said, instead, call me bitter. Because she's dissatisfied with the way things have turned out at this point in her life. Oh, I want to say to you tonight, sometimes if we're not careful, we're looking at things from our perspective. We're not looking at it from God's perspective And we become dissatisfied with the way things have turned out. Oh, but I want to tell you tonight, she's only in chapter one. There's still more of the story to be written. By the time she gets to chapter number four, she's going to be saying, Lord, you did all things well. I want to say tonight, you may be a little bitter because things haven't turned out the way you thought they should have, the way you hoped they would have. But I want to say to you, you're just in chapter one. Just keep on hanging on. Just keep on trusting God. When you get to chapter number four in your life, you'll lift your hands and say he did all things well. It turned out better than I ever dreamed it could. Well, there's Naomi. I call her the warring one. She's in a battle. She's battling the bereavement that has sorrowed her. She's battling the burden that has shackled her. She's battling the bitterness that has soured her. And her life is in turmoil and she's in conflict. I notice not only is there Elimelech and Naomi, but they have two sons. Their names are Malon and Chalion. These two boys have strange names. Malion means sickly and Chalion means pining. It tells me that somewhere in the home of Elimelech and Naomi, something just wasn't right. Daddy has a good name. My God is king. Mama has a good name. God is sweet. But somewhere along the line, something's messed up because when they have two sons, they name them sickly and pining. Malon says that when he came into the world, maybe his mom and dad were just sick of this place. They hadn't moved yet. They hadn't made any steps. But it's all starting on the inside. I want to tell you tonight, there are probably people sitting in this room that you haven't made any outward moves yet. And you have a good name right now, but on the inside, something's gone wrong. On the inside, you come and you sit on a pew, but in your heart, you're saying, I'm just about sick of this place. Uh, The name Pining, Chalion's name, said, not only am I sick of this place, I'm pining to go somewhere else. I'm looking for an easier place. I'm looking for a different road. Can I say to you tonight that whatever's on the inside ultimately will show up on the outside. You can fake it for a while. You can fool me for a while. You can fool the preacher for a while. 
You can fool your Sunday school teacher. You can fool your parents. You can fool your husband, your wife. You can fool the deacons. But I want to tell you, eventually, whatever's on the inside is going to manifest itself and be revealed on the outside. I call them the wanting, uh, uh, the wavering ones. Here they are. They're sick and they're longing. They're sick and tired of this place. They're longing for something else. And they're just waiting for the right opportunity and the right excuse to make a move. Then I notice we're introduced to a woman by the name of Orpha. She's a Moabite. Her name means, depending on which scholar you want to talk to, uh, read after it means either double-minded or the neck. Reminding us that Orpha is a woman who is of a double mind and she has a stiff neck. She starts out, she has good intentions. Well, uh, Naomi, I'm going to go back to, with you to the land of Bethlehem, Judah. But it doesn't take too much to persuade her to turn around and go back where she started from. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Then there's Ruth. I love Ruth. Orpha's the wanting one. She missed out on a lot of stuff she could have had. By the way, when you get to the end of the story, you find that Boaz paid the redemption price for Orpha, even though she never took advantage of it. Can I say, if you're here tonight and you're trying to make a decision about whether to follow Christ or not, the price has been paid whether you ever take advantage of it or not. And if you don't take advantage of it, you're the loser. God's done everything he can do. He's provided everything. All you have to do is just say, yes, I'll come. Yes, I'll respond. Yes, I'll say yes, Lord, to your will and to your way. If you come, you'll find blessings abundant and above anything you could ever imagine. Oh, and then there's Ruth. Ruth's name means friendship. I wish I had time to go to chapter two. There's another whole message I want to preach from chapter number two. Boaz asked a great question in chapter number two. In chapter number two and verse number five, Boaz asked the question. He says, whose damsel is this? Could I just say whose you are is more important than who you are? Boaz is not asking who she is. He's asking whose she is. And I like what the response is. The, the, the reapers respond with three statements. They answered in verse number six and said, it is a Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. She said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. First of all, they said, this is a woman who has a godless heritage. It's the Moabitish damsel. This is a woman who has a grievous history. She came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. Oh, but she has a great hunger. She said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Can I say, she found a gracious helper. Because if you look back, the Bible says right there in verse number four, behold, 
Boaz came from Bethlehem. Oh, could I say that's the story of my life? I, I, I was born in sin. I was shaped in iniquity. Oh, I, I, I had a godless heritage, as it were. I had a grievous history. There's, there's sin and wrong upon my track that followed me. One day I realized I had a great hunger. There was an emptiness on the inside that I couldn't feel myself. And before I ever showed up, I'm glad my Boaz had come from Bethlehem. And his name is Jesus. And in Boaz, I found a gracious helper to meet my every need. Well, I don't want to get ahead of the story. Ruth, her name means friendship. She's the welcomed one. In chapter number one, there's six people that are named. And we don't meet the seventh one until we get to chapter number two in verse number one. You know, there's something in the Bible about that seventh one. I mean, remember that woman at the well, John chapter number four? Jesus said, go call thy husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, well, uh, in that, you said rightly that you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. She had had six men trying to meet the need of her life and every one of them had failed. But on this day, she met the seventh one. And when she went to the city, she came and she said, oh, come see a man that told me all things, whichever I did, is not this the Christ? Oh, there's something about that seventh one. Do you know there's seven people been raised from the dead in the Bible? Elijah raised one, the the, uh, Shunammite woman's son. Elisha did twice as many miracles. He got a double portion. He raised two. He raised the, the, the uh, woman's, uh, uh, the widow of Zarephath is who Elijah raised, uh, the, the, the Shunammite woman's son. And then after Elisha was dead, there were some men passing by. The enemy was coming. They threw a dead body in the tomb and it jumped back out at him, raised to life again. So Elijah raised, uh, raised one, Elisha raised two, and Jesus in his earthly ministry raised three. There was Jairus' daughter who had just died. There was the widow of Nain's son who had been dead long enough to be in the coffin on the way to the cemetery. And there's Lazarus who's been dead and in the grave four days. I guess it's dead, deader, and deadest. One thing about dead, there's no degrees of deadness. And by the way, there's no degrees of spiritual deadness either. We're all born and we're dead in trespasses and in sins. You see, the only difference between one that was dead just a little while and one that's dead a long time was that the one that was dead a long time stunk worse than the one that hadn't been dead very long. That's the difference between a child that is lost and on their way to hell and an adult that's life is wrecked and ruined with sin. It's not that one is more dead than the other. It's just that the child hasn't been dead long enough to stink like the adult has. But they're still dead. And there's no hope for a dead man unless the seventh man comes along. You see, all those six that were dead and were raised to life again, they all died once more. But all the seventh one, he didn't have someone raise him from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later, the sun rose. And not only the sun rose, S-U-N, but the S-O-N rose. And he lives forevermore. And because he lives, you and I can live also. Oh, there's something about the seventh one. And in this, in this book, the seventh one is Boaz. 
And I've already mentioned that he comes from Bethlehem. Oh, and when you get to the middle of the book, you find out that he's a redeemer. Can I tell you, uh, Boaz is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why I just call him the wonderful one. Oh, I've got to hurry tonight. I'm not even through page one of my notes, and I've got a lot of notes. I write real small because I think small writing makes a page look full, and it'll last a long time, and then it lasts longer than I intended it to. I wish we had time. We talk about the people. We can talk about the places. The story unfolds around two locations. There is Bethlehem, Judah. Uh, that means the house of bread and praise. And by the way, that pictures the place of obedience to God's will. And you notice that in Bethlehem, Judah, there was a famine in the land. Can I say to you, being in the place of obedience to God's will does not exempt you from problems and difficulties in life. But can I say, Elimelech left trying to get away from the problem and wound up with a worse problem. Boaz just stayed and I think things turned out pretty good for him because when we are introduced to him, he's a mighty man of wealth. I guess he survived the famine okay, did he not? If you will just stay in the place of obedience to the will of God, even in the difficult times, you'll come out on the other side of the difficulty doing mighty well. Moab, the name Moab means from her father. And really it's a reminder of their heritage because the Moabites were descendants of that illicit, immoral relationship between Lot and his daughter in the cave when they escaped from the city of Sodom. And really the Moabites were enemies of God's people. And the, the truth of it is that Moab pictures the place of backsliding, which is nothing more than the place of departure from the will of God. And everyone in here is either gonna live your life in Bethlehem, Judah, the place of obedience to the will of God, or you're gonna live it in Moab, the place of disobedience to the will of God. There are no other places in the story. You have to make your choice. Well, there's the people, there's the places. I like just mention the placement of the book. You notice that it's the eighth book in the canon of scripture. Eight is the number of new beginnings and in this book there's gonna be a new beginning for Ruth. Can I say that's what God wants to give to each and every individual on the face of the earth Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. God wants to give you a new beginning. In Judges, Israel is in gloom. In Samuel, by the time you get to the end of Samuel, Israel is in their glory. David's on the throne. Things are going well. The kingdom is at its pinnacle. And there's only one way to get from gloom to glory. And you have to go through Ruth to do that. And Ruth is a story of grace. And the only way to move from the gloom of sin in your life to the glory of a right relationship with God, with the right king enthroned upon the throne of your heart, is you're going to have to go by way of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. I, I wish I had time I could talk to you about the prophecy of this book. You say, I don't, I don't see any prophecy in this book. Well, you're just not looking well enough. There's prophecy in this book. You see, in Judges, now notice when the events took place. Now it came to pass, chapter one, verse number one. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. That's when this takes place. 
Now, in the book of Judges, Israel is without a king. We read the very last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So in the book of Judges, there is no king on the throne in the land of Israel. That picture's today. There is no king on the throne in Israel. Every man is just doing what is right in his own eyes. That's why the land of Israel is such chaos because they don't have a king on the throne. Well, then when you get to 1 Samuel, you find out that they get a king, they just get the wrong king. His name is Saul. And when he starts out, he starts out really well. Starts out great. Everybody's in favor of him. Everybody thinks it's great. But somewhere along about the middle of his reign, things turn sour. Because he's not the right king. Doesn't have the right heart. By the way, that's exactly what's going to happen in the tribulation. There's going to be a king. The Antichrist is going to set up shop on planet earth and he's going to rule and he's going to be in charge and at the beginning everything's going to look good it's going to seem fine but somewhere about the middle about that three and a half year mark he's going to turn out to be really bad and Israel's going to be in chaos you see something about that wrong king that wrong king hates the right king oh and can I tell you that antichrist hates the real Christ and he's raging and he's wanting to destroy him. Oh, but when you get to 2 Samuel, everything falls into place because Israel gets a right king on the throne. Oh, and his name is David and he's a man who has a heart after God. Can I say at the close of the tribulation, there's gonna be a showdown between the kings and the right king is gonna overthrow the wrong king. And the right king is going to set up shop. He's going to set up throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. And for a thousand years, it'll be peace on earth. But by the way, when that wrong king is on the throne, guess where the right king's at? Oh, he's off somewhere else with a flock. I will tell you when the tribulation takes place, don't worry your little head about what's going to happen because you're going to be in another place. You're the flock. You're going to be in another place with the right king. We're going to be fellowshipping at the marriage supper of the lamb. We're going to be rejoicing in heaven. We're going to be trying out saddles to fit on our white horses. Some of us are going to take riding lessons so we know how to ride when he comes back because when he comes back, we're not going to have to fight. We just get to ride in and enjoy the show. But by the way, the book of Ruth takes place during the days of Judges. I said, that's today. And during the time when Israel has no king on the throne, the Redeemer is working to redeem to himself a Gentile bride. Oh, that's us. We're the church of the living God, the bride of Christ. And in these days when there's no king on the throne, before the wrong king comes and sets on the throne, God is busy redeeming a bride for his son. Wow, I've got to hurry tonight. I haven't even got through my introduction. The theme of Ruth is grace. Let me just give you a little outline of these chapters. I, there, there's so much I want to say about this book. It's such a fascinating book. Chapter number one, you can call it misery in Moab. Or I like to call it better, glimpses of grace. 
oh, uh, trying, to, uh, uh, trying to make it in Moab never works for God's people. Uh, when Naomi went to Moab, she found sorrow. Her husband, her sons died. She found scarcity. She said in verse 21, I went out full and the Lord brought me home again empty. She found sourness. In verse number 20, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Bara, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She found shame. When she came back, she brought with her Ruth the Moabitess the leftovers of her sin. That's what happens to everybody that goes to Moab. You'll find sorrow. You'll find scarcity. You'll find sourness. You'll find shame. You say, I thought you said glimpses of grace. Oh, yeah, I see a little grace in there. It gleams through the shadows. You see, she's burdened, she's bankrupt, she's bitter, but she's back. Here's a glimpse of grace. You say everything that happened in that chapter was bad. Oh, no, there's some good things that happened. You say, what happened that was good? Elimelech and Malon and Chilion died. You say, how's that good? Well, you see, the very thing that Naomi thought she couldn't live without was the very thing that was keeping her in a place apart from the blessings of God. Elimelech is the head of the house. He's chosen to go to Moab. She doesn't have any ability to leave. She's got to go with him. But under Jewish economy, when he dies, Malon, the next oldest boy, becomes the head of the house, and she's still stuck there. And by the way, him and his brother, Chalion, are not planning on leaving because they've already married Moabitish women. She says, don't take my husband, don't take my sons. And God says, the very thing you think you can't live without is the very thing that's hindering you most from being in the place of blessing. Oh, could I ask you tonight, what is it you think you can't live without? That might be the very thing that's hindering you from being in the place of blessing. If God chooses to reach down and take it out of the way, you say, oh, my heart's going to be broken. Your heart might be broken. But oh, why don't you trust him? Because he knows what's best. Not only that, but do you notice when she starts back home, she does everything in her power to get rid of Orpha and Ruth. She doesn't want them. She tries to discourage them. She tries to turn them aside. She's successful with Orpha, but not with Ruth. You see, no Jewish woman wanted to come back to Bethlehem, Judah, with a Moabitish daughter-in-law tagging along behind. Uh, that, that was anathema. That, that was just bad. Uh, they were under a curse. They were the enemies of the people of God. And now everybody's going to know what's happened in Moab. You wish that Moab was like Vegas and what happened in Moab stayed in Moab. But by the way, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas either. It always follows you. Be sure your sin will find you out. And she does everything she can to discourage Ruth from coming. But little does she know that the very thing she tries to get rid of the most, the thing she doesn't want, is going to wind up being her biggest blessing. Can I say there may be something in your life that's a great burden to you, that's a reminder of things that you wish you could forget, and you prayed and you've asked God to get rid of it. You've asked him to take it away. You've asked him to remove it. But he chooses to leave it there. You may just need to trust him because he may understand that in days to come, that's going to be the source of biggest blessing in your life. Something beyond what you could ever dream. I've got to hurry. Chapter number two. 
Glimpses of grace, chapter number one. Chapter number two is favor in the field or the generosity of grace. I wish I had time to tell you about chapter number two. Uh, Ruth finds a lot of blessings in chapter number two. There's the blessing of the precept. She says in verse number one, or, or verse number two, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Now, I wish I had time to take you back to Leviticus chapter number 23 and Deuteronomy chapter number 24. Israel had a law. When you harvest your field, God said to the, the, the owner of the field, you cannot harvest the corner. You have to leave the corner. Now, by the way, God didn't say how big the corner had to be. You could just go out in the field and just harvest a little circle in the middle and call everything else the corner, and God was happy with that. Or you could be a tight miser and you'd get as close as you could, just leave a teeny tiny one stalk of corn in the corner and call it the corner, and you had obeyed the law. You see, the law did two things. The law gave the, the seeker a chance to discover grace. But the law also gave the servant the opportunity to dispense grace. And I want to tell you, there's been time in my life when I need to discover grace and now I want to be a dispenser of grace. Well, this precept said that those corners were for the poor, the stranger, the widow, and the fatherless. Did you know that Ruth qualifies for every corner? I mean, she's poor, she's fatherless, she's a stranger, she's a widow, God said, Ruth, I'm going to write the law in such a way that no matter which corner you find yourself in, you qualify. Just go at it. Oh, I want to tell you, this, we have grace because of the precept. The precept written before we ever existed tells us how to find grace. Not only the blessing of precept, the blessing of providence. The Bible says, Verse number three, she went and came, gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to lie on a part of the field belonging to Boaz. Her hap, just happenstance. Yeah, the providence of God is what it was. God's moving in her heart. She doesn't even realize it. He's just saying, uh, you know, look, look, those people over there look happy. I think that's a happy-looking field. Look, it's got big corners. Uh, I, I, th- I think that'd be a good corner for you. Why don't you just happened to drop in there. And the whole time, God's sitting up in heaven saying, it's working out just like I wanted it to. Working out just like I thought. And by the way, you might be in a place in your life where you have a little heartache, a little trouble. God in heaven might be just rubbing his hand saying, it's working out just like I wanted it to. They don't know what I have in store. They don't know what I've got planned. But all the good stuff is coming down the line. If they'll just hang on, if they'll just hold on. I've got some wonderful things in mind for them. Oh, I've got a hurry. Not only the blessing of providence, but the blessing of a person. Do you know in this book, we call it the book of Ruth, but do you really know that Boaz's name is mentioned more than Ruth's is? Ruth's name appears 12 times. Boaz's name appears 20 times. Oh, by the way, it's not about us. It's about him. Just keep that in mind. I know we think the whole world revolves around us and all our problems and all our difficulties and all our cares and all our woes. Really, it's not about us. It's about him. And when you get to the end of the book, it's not Ruth that's going to get glory. It's Boaz that's going to get glory. And in our life, when we get to the end of our life, it ought not be us who has the most said about them. 
but it ought to be him who loved us and gave himself for us that gets all the glory through our life. Well, chapter number three, I don't have time to tell you, but it's trust on the threshing floor or the gravity of grace. You see, the law has enlightened Ruth about grace. Boaz has extended grace in chapter number two. Naomi in the opening verse of chapter three has encouraged Ruth concerning grace. But see, grace is a serious matter because now Ruth has to make a choice. The law can reveal it to her. Boaz can demonstrate it to her. Naomi can encourage her and push her in the right direction. But ultimately, it's Ruth's choice. Can I say the gospel, if you're here without Jesus Christ tonight, the gospel is revealed. Can I say I hope we've demonstrated the gospel. I hope we've encouraged you in the gospel. But the choice is up to you. We can't take it for you. We can't volunteer for you. It's up to you. You have to make the choice. That's why grace is such a serious thing. There is a a sense of gravity about it because if she doesn't choose right, She's going to miss out. She has to abandon her self-sufficiency. She can't work enough to be in. She has to abandon her self-righteousness. She can't be good enough to get in. She has to abandon her skepticism. She just simply has to say, I've come to the end of myself. I'm going to trust him. Oh, that's what salvation is. You just came to the end of yourself. I'm going to trust him. Finally, chapter number four is rejoicing with the Redeemer, the glory of grace. This is what grace does. It takes foreigners, makes them family. Takes sorrowers and makes them sing. Notice what happens once that seventh one, that man by the name of Boaz starts working. Oh man, I've got to hurry. I need to get here first. I should have worked backwards. Notice there's a purchase that's required. Verse number nine, Boaz said to the elders, all the people, your witnesses today, I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Chalion's, all the Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife. You know, Ruth is one of only two brides in the Bible where you read about being purchased. Now, we talked earlier about we're the bride of Christ Paul will say it this way in the book of Acts, whom he had purchased with his own blood. One is Ruth, the other is a woman by the name of Gomer in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter three and verse number two, Hosea says, so I bought her to me. She had gone into sin, she had played the harlot, she had gone away from him, abandoned her husband. He finds her in a slave auction block and he goes down And he buys her, he purchases her back to be his wife again. Do you know that these two women, these two purchased brides are two sides of the same coin? Ruth is the side that reminds us that Ruth is one who is alienated by her birth. It's not what she did that's brought her to the state. It's what somebody who lived long ago did. By the way, we're born with a sin nature, not because of what we did, but because of somebody who lived long ago in a place called the Garden of Eden. We're alienated by our birth. But that's not the only way we're alienated. We're also alienated by our behavior. Gomer knew what was right, and she chose to do wrong anyway, and that's us. 
We fit both sides, alienated by birth, alienated by behavior. By the way, Ruth pictures man in his self-righteousness. Does not all the city know that thou art a righteous woman, a virtuous woman? She's really good, but all her goodness can't bring her into the family. By the way, your self-righteousness can't get you into the family of God. Gomer pictures man in his sinful rebellion. She knew right from wrong and chose to do wrong anyway deliberately. But you know, amazing thing, both of them found somebody who loved them enough to pay the price and take them as they were. Ruth says, no matter who you are, Gomer says, no matter what you've done, there's somebody who loves you, who paid the price to redeem you. Oh, I wish I had time. I'd tell you about the last word in the book. The last word is David. See, there's a purchase required. There's a product that results. When redemption takes place, they have a boy. His name is Obed. You know what the name Obed means? The name Obed means a worshiper or a servant who worships. Can I tell you the product of redemption is always a worshiper? If there's no worshiper, there was no redemption. That's why you ought to be glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of God. Why? Because I want to go worship. I want to go worship him. Why? Because I've been redeemed. But then there's a prospect. There's a prospect to look forward to. Oh, Ruth hadn't seen him yet. But God says David's on his way. Can I say we haven't seen him yet? But our king is on his way. Let's live so we're ready to meet him when he comes. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve him this week.